Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. It's February 17th, 2022, and Russian figure skater Kamila Velieva is about to begin one of the most anticipated performances of the Winter Olympics in Beijing. The first big jump in her free skate routine is flawless. And at just 15, Valieva's already achieved things most skaters could only dream of. She's led her team to gold in the team event. And this is supposed to be the moment she makes that leap from skating superstar to global icon. But halfway through, that leap turns into a fall, sending her body tumbling onto the ice. Just a few moments later, she stumbles and falls again and again. At the end of the performance, the crowd cheers. Valieva throws her hands up in a triumphant finishing pose, but the camera zooms in on a face that's filled with pain. Not only because she lost her shot at the gold. Suddenly it comes to light the next day that she had tested positive for this banned substance. That's Matt Magendi, a journalist for the Evening Standard, who's covered the dangerous, shadowy world of doping at the Olympics. It's a world that's been repeatedly exposed over the past 20 years, especially through high-profile stories about Russian athletes like Valieva. And to see this girl go under, you know, through this process on the world stage, and you, and you saw it happen, like she fell apart when it came to the individual competition, there were tears, it's just such a sad, sad story that unfortunately has quite a few more chapters and months to run, I think. Valieva had tested positive for trimetazidine, a drug meant to increase blood flow to the heart. That effect could improve an athlete's performance, which is why it's one of the many drugs that athletes aren't supposed to take when competing. You know, we can't quite conjecture what's happened. There's a 15-year-old girl who has a drug in her system that shouldn't be in her system, so there is an investigation going on into her entourage, uh, whether it be her coach, medical team around her, how this drug got into her system. At the time of this episode, this investigation is still ongoing. The legal team that represents Valieva claims she didn't intentionally take the drug. They say that trace elements of the drug were found in her blood because she had shared a glass of water with her grandfather, who takes the medication for a heart condition. And while the International Olympic Committee hasn't confirmed whether Valieva has officially violated anti-doping rules, they have made statements singling out Valieva for this positive drug test and threatening her standing as an Olympic athlete with potential sanctions. All of this pressure actually came down on Valieva as she was competing in Beijing, raising questions and concerns about what it was doing to one of the youngest athletes in figure skating, physically, mentally, and emotionally. If someone has either given her that drug, 
to cheat, said you've got to take this to cheat, or she's been given that not knowing. That is horrific. You know, that's abuse of a child, 15-year-old. It's a really horrible, murky affair, and you could see how bad it was for this kid. Valieva was the latest Russian athlete to become the face of a bigger system, which has taken over these athletes' careers and sometimes even sent them into exile, fearing they'll be assassinated for speaking out. Why has the Russian government committed to running the world's most effective state-sponsored doping operation? How has this system of Olympic-level doping skated right by every attempt to expose it and put an end to it? And what happens to all the athletes who end up paying the price for all of this? I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and the cost of greatness, both on and off the Olympic stage. On today's episode, we're digging into a topic that comes up every two years, then fades away until the next controversy. Doping by Russian teams at the Olympics. And to be honest, it's not a story about cheating, or even a story about winning. Instead, we'll peel back decades of history with Russian athletes and international watchdogs to find out how Russia's elaborate, state-sponsored doping regime has become virtually unstoppable. And why taking away medals from Russian Olympians won't change a system that set them up to take the fall. Let's start by defining what doping is and talking about how it's grown over the past 50 plus years. Doping is a very broad term. It's not a scientific one. At some point, the Dutch word dupe, referring to syrup, entered English as dope and was used in reference to opium. In modern sports, dope can be just about any banned substance an athlete can take to boost their performance. The Olympics keeps a list of banned substances, which is always being updated. But what's important to remember here is that performance-enhancing drugs can lead to heart attacks, anxiety, depression, aggressive behavior, infertility, and other serious side effects. So they're not banned just because they give athletes an edge. They're banned because they can cause irreversible harm to the human body. The ever-present struggle to catch doping at the Olympics started in 1968 when Swedish competitor Hans Gunnar Lilienwall had a couple of beers to calm his nerves before competing in the pentathlon. That was the first year that blood testing for banned substances became routine, and Lilienwall had to give up his bronze medal for shooting at his target under the influence. Over the decades, the usual story of one athlete having their medal stripped for having a drink or taking steroids evolved into meticulous, behind-the-scenes conspiracies. In 2004, an American lab director named Victor Conti publicly admitted to supplying Major League Baseball players and Olympic competitors with undetectable, performance-enhancing drugs. TV journalist Graham Bessinger interviewed Conti about one of his most famous clients, American track and field star Marion Jones, who had her medals stripped by the IOC after the 2000 Summer Olympics. And when Conti went to prison for supplying drugs to Jones, he called out a sophisticated, systemic, and official, what he calls sponsored, world of doping that went beyond the athletes he was supplying. There's information 
about other athletes, and, and if you go back and look at these other athletes that are in those, those races with her, I believe the overwhelming majority were using stuff too. And sponsored, and by doctors and team officials that had knowledge of this. Rob Kohler, who's worked for decades in anti-doping institutions, has also squared off with teams and labs that push the worst consequences onto individual athletes. If an athlete tests positive for a banned substance, sport will do everything they can to sanction. And the duty and the, the strict liability rests with the athlete, and the athlete is always left in a powerless position. When a sport administrator, a laboratory expert, a anti-doping person breaks the rules and undermines the system, nothing really happens to them. And if individuals like coaches or lab techs can escape the consequences of doping, then just imagine when a government-run program makes doping the rule, not the exception. When you have a regulator that's not using its powers to regulate, he can cycle individuals in and out and no one's ever sanctioned. And everyone's above the law. I mean, if Russia and the anti-doping scandal didn't demand the highest sanction, what will ever? If the International Athletics Federation at the time, where the president and others, not just the president, were undermining the system, weren't deemed non-compliant and sanctioned, if biathlon, the same. So they take away individuals, but nothing ever happens to the sport. In the 1980s, the East German government forced its athletes to use banned substances, sometimes without their knowledge. When he investigated this, Matt Magendi saw the kind of toxic legacy that state-sponsored doping had already left for athletes and their families. Now, these people, a lot of them had unwittingly doped. Um, and it was a thing called oral terribinol, which was a, a steroid given to kids as young as eight years old. This little blue pill that they told was vitamins and would take this as make stronger. And what was incredibly sad, obviously that's terrible, that's abusive in, in its own right. But there were stories of a, a little list of people who had died from various cancers of second generations affected by it. And, and that was just horrific. So that sort of gives an idea of, of what happens within a state-sponsored system and, and the impact it can have for, for years and years, even onto another generation in some instances. These drugs had deadly health effects that persisted for multiple generations. Lives were altered in ways that nobody expected. Families were shattered. Worst of all, this wasn't something that individual athletes ever had a choice about. We're used to hearing about individual athletes deciding to dope for personal gain, that we don't always see how state-sponsored doping is capable of making those decisions for the athletes. And when it happens on a systemic level, without the athlete's consent, state-sponsored doping doesn't even seem like the right term. We are talking about state-imposed doping. Even if state-sponsored doping is tough to stop, that hasn't stopped thousands of people from trying. On a global level, the organization charged with investigating doping is WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. WADA had been warned about this by Vitaly Stepanov, a young doping control agent at Rosada, the Russian Federation's domestic anti-doping agency. When he joined the agency in 2008, Vitaly thought he was helping Russian athletes clean up the system. We uh, 
tell people, athletes, coaches, managers about the bad health consequences uh, of doping, uh, other reasons why athletes should not dope. In this 2020 interview with Athletics Illustrated, Vitaly says he had no idea he was participating in a corrupt system. That is, until he met an elite middle-distance runner named Yulia Rusanova. In 2009, he asked her on a date. She said yes. They went out for a meal and started talking shop. So I told her how great the organization is doing and how good I'm doing my part. And uh, she kind of just smiled and she said, you, you are an idiot and you, you work for the organization that, uh, that helps Russian athletes to dope. From there, Yulia calmly explained to Vitaly that she was doping. Her teammates were doping. Her competitors were doping. And even though the drugs sometimes came with terrible side effects, their coaches kept directing them to stick with the program, while Vitaly's own agency looked the other way. But tearing off this Band-Aid on their first date didn't end Yulia and Vitaly's relationship. When Matt Magendi interviewed Vitaly and Yulia, he asked them, well, how did the second date happen? He always says, oh, well, I'm not very bright. You know, you would have thought these two polar opposites in some ways, but actually Yulia was a, a victim of the, of the system. Just a few months later, they got married. And in 2013, when Yulia was caught doping, then banned from international competitions for two years, she finally got a chance to step outside the system and started talking publicly about what she had experienced. When she finally did help and tell the truth, it released an incredible weight and burden on her that perhaps she didn't realize. When in the beginning of 2013, I was facing a ban, Vitaly, my husband, offered me a choice. I could act like most of my teammates did, cry and continue to listen to the lies of the Russian sports officials, or we could try to fight the system together. That's Yulia courageously testifying at a U.S. congressional hearing about how she ended her journey as a Russian Olympic runner and started a new one as an anti-doping informant. Trying to get the attention of the World Anti-Doping Agency, Yulia secretly recorded conversations she had with doctors, trainers, and other athletes. At one point, catching her own doctor bragging about turbocharging her performance with banned substances. After Yulia and Vitaly played these recordings on a German TV documentary about doping, WADA launched a formal investigation that continued all the way through the 2014 Olympics in Sochi. Here's Rob Kohler, who was Deputy Director General of WADA at the time. I was part of the independent observer team who is tasked to go to the Games and independently oversee the doping control at the games. So to make sure everything was credible, making sure that the, the collections were done properly, the chain of custody was sent to the lab, that everything was up and, and it was independently reviewed. But little did Rob know that Russian team officials had been collecting clean samples of athletes' urine and blood for months leading up to the Olympics. And what would happen is in the middle of the night, the Russian samples were put through a mouse hole behind a bookshelf. And those samples, which were, most of them were dirty, were collected by the Secret Service, so the KGB or the FSB, and were brought to a separate building, were opened up. The urine was swapped and changed because they collected athlete urine prior to the games. 
they had a bank of, of urine, clean urine, and they, they switched them out for the athletes' dirty urine. The Russians came up with a way to open the bottles without being able to see they've been manipulated. So they didn't have to break them. They closed them up. They put them back to, through the mouse hole in the morning, and the samples were analyzed. And all this was happening <laughs> under my not-so-watchful eye, I guess I would say. But who would have expected a government to invest money to bring in the Secret Service to develop a way to open tamper-proof containers? In 2015, Water released its first report confirming what Yulia and Vitali had exposed. The report also identified the former head of the Moscow Anti-Doping Laboratory, Grigory Rodchenkov, as instrumental to the operation. Thanks to Vitali and Yulia Stepanov, WADA had also caught Rodchenkov on tape, revealing the Russian government's role in sample swapping at Sochi. When Rodchenkov realized how exposed he was, he dropped everything and bought a plane ticket to the U.S., leaving his entire family behind. Rodchenkov flees from a source. He gets something from, I think it was the Kremlin, to suggest uh, that his life was in danger. So he extricates all this data from the laboratory, takes it all with him in his little backpack, and off he goes to, to the States and relocates there and exposes all at the level of cheating that had gone on. That's Matt Magendi again. He heard that Yulia and Vitali, who had already left Germany for the United States, were also receiving death threats. I asked what would happen to them if they were to go back to Russia, and they're of the view that if they were to go back to Russia, they would be killed, they'd be dead, it would be declared an accident. Yulia, Vitali, and Rodchenkov had their lives completely upended, like the countless others before them. And that doesn't surprise Rob. Russia has never paid the price for conducting an institutionalized doping program. And people have said to me in the role I'm in now, how can you be demanding that the Russian athletes not be able to compete at the Olympics? And at the same time, say you support and fight for athlete rights. It's a great question. The answer is simple. The athletes don't have a choice. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. By now, we have all the evidence we need to believe athletes who blow the whistle on doping. And from 2002 in Salt Lake City through 2022 in Beijing, a total of 45 medals have been stripped from Russian athletes. That's about 30% of all medals ever stripped from athletes in the history of the Games. It's also higher than the total number of medals stripped from the next four top offenders, Ukraine, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and the U.S. combined. But what can advocates like Rob really do to take down the system? 
when the people behind that system don't really seem to care about any of that. The question of why Russian government would commit so much effort to cheating at the Olympics isn't easy to answer. On a basic level, it seems obvious. They want to win, right? With that in mind, some people point to the 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver. Despite having a great track record for bringing home the gold, the Russian Federation finished in 11th place in the medal count that year. But 2010 was the year that Yulia had spilled the beans to Vitaly about a complex operation that had already been up and running for years. So even if Vancouver turned out to be a national embarrassment for Russian teams, it couldn't have been a starting point for the doping system she was a part of. The perspective that I've taken of the doping episodes that we've seen over the last 10 years is is that they are as much a geopolitical power play designed to or intended to subvert the global system of sport as much as it was you know, helping Russian athletes win gold medals. That's Simon Chadwick, a professor of sport and director of the Center for the Eurasian Sport Industry at EM Lyon School of Business in France. And he has a different theory for why Russia became the runaway leader in state-sponsored doping. I think it was, you know, it's essentially Putin messing with the heads of people involved in global sport. And, and I think he achieved that. Chadwick points to all other kinds of global sports where Russia shows up to compete, but doesn't seem to be single-mindedly focused on winning the game. We don't see this omnipotence or, or this you know, pervasive Russian success in elite professional sport. If they were truly effective as dopers, they would be dominating sports, and they are not. Which leads me to conclude that the doping program is about much more than on-track performance. What we do instead see is just it's, it's a trail of destruction and subversion and confusion and division and arguments and confrontation. It is about disruption. Simon says the strategy of disruption lines up with Russia's overall approach to global politics and with President Vladimir Putin's history of using Russian power not to dominate the world order, but to undermine its legitimacy. So if you look at, for example, the World Bank, essentially the World Bank is a US institution established after Allied victory in the Second World War. And Putin essentially doesn't like this. He doesn't want this. He thinks that Russia is more deserving of a more prominent role in the world, is powerful enough to have that. We're so used to thinking about the Olympics as a diverse global stage shared by the world, when actually the only non-European to ever lead the IOC was an American, Avery Brundage. And from 2001 until 2013, while much of the story was unfolding, the president of the IOC was a Belgian count. So for people outside the US and the EU, the modern Olympics can feel like a club that these Western powers begrudgingly allow them to join. Talking to Simon, I could see how, from that perspective, the next best thing to winning at the games could be making the world lose respect for the people who run them. And stripped medals or no, Russia's managed to do both. 
Just a few months before the Rio Olympics in 2016, WADA submitted its second report on Russia's state-sponsored doping programs to the IOC. Here's Rob. I remember being at WADA at the time and knowing the IOC had so much control over the organization that the executive made a decision to recommend, because WADA didn't have the power to sanction, to recommend that the Russian Athletics Federation and the Russian sport, all Russian sport, be banned from the Olympic Games. When that decision came through, I was the proudest person that day. When I heard the WADA executive committee make Russia accountable for cheating and recommend that the IOC ban them from the Rio Olympic Games. But the IOC went beyond just ignoring the recommendation. The IOC had a session where they voted that they wouldn't ban Russia from the Rio Olympic Games. And the president, Thomas Bach, spent the morning criticizing WADA, saying WADA was broken, WADA needed to be reformed, and shift the narrative away from Russian doping to WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, was broken because they exposed institutionalized doping. It was quite, quite bizarre. So I went from the, the highest moment of pride to the lowest common denominator when the IOC let Russia compete. After cheating every Olympian, after taking medals away from Olympians, um, and that, was a pretty, that was a pretty tough time to go through. At the time, the IOC did enact the new anti-doping policies to enforce for individual athletes, as well as a new anti-doping division of the Court of Arbitration for Sport, or CAS. In 2018, they barred the Russian Federation from fielding Olympic teams, while allowing Russian athletes to compete under the name Russian Olympic Committee. In 2019, Rob Kohler decided to leave the anti-doping institutions that he used to lead. Now he's working to ensure that athletes can organize and fight back when they're being abused. He's convinced that nothing will change unless the athletes trapped in this cycle have real power to change it or to move on when their careers are destroyed by it. There are powers to extradite and to prosecute. And not only that, there's restitution for athletes. So athletes have the ability to be compensated In 2022, Russian President Putin watched from a box seat at the Beijing opening ceremonies as Russian teams waved to the crowd. Russian Olympic Committee. A few nights later, the world watched figure skater Kamila Valieva tumble onto the ice. Then came the dual spotlight of scandal and defeat. Here's journalist Matt Magendi one more time. She can read the stories, hear all the stories. There were interviews. She comes through mix zones off the ice. And the mix zones are where journalists can ask athletes questions. And there'd be Russian and international media there wanting to ask her questions. There was this massive spotlight on a 15-year-old kid who should be protected from this all. You know, she's a, she's a girl. She's not even classified as an adult. While the verdict on her Olympics doping case is still out, Camila Valieva's figure skating career continues. And whatever happens with her career, one thing is certain. The system of doping that surrounds her in controversy is alive and well. 
The government officials, doctors and coaches who keep the system running haven't been given sufficient reason to stop. The anti-doping institutions that are supposed to clean up the system are still playing catch up. With official decisions and sanctions and metal stripping decisions sometimes being made months or even years after the games have already ended. In the meantime, it's Olympic athletes who take the weight of state-sponsored doping on their own shoulders. And if there's one athlete who understands that better than anyone, it's Yulia Stepanova. Here she is speaking before the U.S. Congress. The Russian doping system does not hate people that stay in the system and get caught. It hates people that fight the system. Yulia's revolutionary testimony helped to pass the Rodchenkov anti-doping bill, which was signed into U.S. law in December of 2020. And although we have yet to see the consequences of that bill play out, it does send a message that's close to Yulia's heart. Not every country's goal is to cover up doping use of athletes of their own country. In fact, rules do matter, and ethics matters in sports. I could never imagine that we would get this far in raising our concerns about the doping situation in Russia. And the fight is not over yet. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. It was written by Stephen Wood. Additional story editing from James Boo. Editing and scoring from Ben Chug. Tori Smith is our associate producer. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Technical direction and engineering by Nick Dooley. Original music by James Lavino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Azenstadt. Next time on Torched, we travel back to the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang, South Korea, where the opening ceremonies of the Winter Games are unfolding. Outside the Olympic Data Center, just about no one knew that the Olympics were on the brink of a technological disaster. With things like the Olympics, if something matters to the world, it is an opportunity, it is a stage to make a statement. Sometimes those are amazing statements of fraternal love and the human race coming together and appreciating all that we can accomplish, a lot of times it's an opportunity to just try to stir the pot and and cause some trouble. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time.